You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. For the final time in a foreign country as President of the United States of America, Barack Hussein Obama eased into his seat as a Secret Service agent shut the heavy door. Let's go home, he said. Inside the presidential limousine, known as the Beast, the world outside is silent and kept at a distance by inches of bulletproof glass and armored metal. There's an eerie familiarity to riding in a motorcade, whether you're in an empty Saudi Arabian desert or a crowded street in Hanoi. The two front seats are always occupied by Secret Service agents who never say a word. While they sit there scanning the road ahead, you learn to talk as if they are not present. Obama glanced across at me and a light crept into his eyes. Did you see Ben forgot his socks, he said to Susan Rice, peeling back a wrapper and popping a piece of Nicorette into his mouth. He laughed in anticipation of his own words. I mean, come on, man, your socks? From 2009 to 2017, Ben Rhodes served as the deputy National Security Advisor to President Barack Obama overseeing the administration's national security communications, speechwriting, public diplomacy, and global engagement programming. His new book is The World As It Is, a memoir of the Obama White House. Thank you for joining me, Ben. It's great to be with you. This is an amazing piece of writing you managed to capture in a story and give us the all the importance of story, the narrative, the plot, the events, everything that's happening in your life yeah. that just happened to be eight years of the most important and consequential presidential administration, perhaps in history. Yeah. That was an interesting challenge. Did you begin writing this book as you began your journey as with Barack Obama? No. Um, and I wasn't even certain I was going to write this kind of book until basically the end of the administration. Um, I kind of stumbled out of the White House exhausted from eight years. Um, and frankly, in part because of how discombobulated I was by the election result, um, I saw an opportunity to kind of reclaim my story, to tell my story. Um, and the the unique opportunity I saw that I had is that when I went to work for Obama in 2007, you know, I was 29 years old. I was this kind of anonymous kid. Um, and by the time I walked out the door at 39, I was this kind of close confidant of, of a president. And so what I wanted to do was tell essentially a coming of age story, you know, that could be anywhere. It happened to be in the White House. Right. Um, and that could let the reader in because um, I wasn't a distant figure. You know, I wasn't a Hillary Clinton or I was somebody that they might see themselves as, you know, and I could basically take the reader through these 10 years through my personal experience of coming age uh, and then also all these world events that I interacted with. I thought you did a really good job of creating uh, at the beginning of the book, getting us into your world and how as you got brought yourself into uh, Barack Obama's world. Talk about joining his campaign. Well, you know, I had actually worked in foreign policy for a few years and had been involved with the 9-11 Commission and then something called the Iraq Study Group. Um, so I spent this time looking at these two catastrophic events of the early 21st century and decided that, you know, if you really want to make change, it's not enough to kind of study and think about these things from the outside. You have to get involved in politics. And I wanted to work for Obama because, you know, as I described, he came along and he sounded different from all the other politicians. And he'd been right about Iraq when just about everybody else had been wrong who was around me. And I, I just wanted to do anything I could to work my way into his campaign. And, you know, I started doing a bunch of work for free and helping out here and there, but never really knew if it was going to lead anywhere. And then one day a guy called me and said, hey, could you come down to debate prep with Obama, the, the session where they get ready for the upcoming primary debate? And I hurried over there, and I described walking into this conference room. There's Barack Obama at the head of the table. I never met him before. He's got his feet up. He's all relaxed. He's got all these advisors around him, you know, David Axelrod and other people. Um, and I was so nervous um, that I didn't even want him to call on me to speak because I was afraid that I, I wasn't going to be able to, to get my advice out. Um, and when he did call on me, the question was whether to vote for funding for the Iraq surge. And I, because I couldn't, 
get a paragraph out, started asking him a series of questions. You know, do you support this policy? Don't you have another policy? Uh, and he's saying, yes, yes. Uh, and he finally says, kind of cut to the chase. And I was like, well, why would you vote for a policy that you oppose when you have an alternative policy, which is kind of a common sense approach to the problem. Um, but frankly, everybody else was viewing it through a political lens. Like, will you be seen as weak as a commander in chief if you don't vote for this? And and something in that approach seemed to resonate with him because he came over to me, shook my hand and said, you know, glad you're with us. I think that that exchange captures both the Obama presidency and your approach in this book in terms of being based on common sense yeah. and fact-based yeah. <laughs> as opposed yeah. to um, narrative-based. And I think that's one of the interesting aspects of this book is that you have created a really strong narrative. And part of that is by virtue of your really elegant language and the the polished way you're able to shape the individual events. And part of that is because you want to tell this big story. Yeah. But at the same time, the idea of story and narratives themselves during these eight years were yeah. taking on a very yeah. <laughs> unfortunate tinge too. So I'd like you to talk about the contrast in the way that you were using narrative and that the way you see narratives being used yeah. in a greater uh, public marketplace? Yeah, it's, it's a core question. It's a, the, the fundamental question that I was getting at. Because um, throughout, I describe almost like an insanity to the, <laughs> to the narratives that kind of swirl around, swirled around Barack Obama. You know, at the beginning, it was kind of foreign policy. And I remember when I went to work for him, he took two positions that were cast as, as naive and irresponsible. One, that he would engage in diplomacy with Iran. Another, that he would go after bin Laden in Pakistan. And there was no reason to not say those other than the fact that like you just don't do that you know you, it, there was an established narrative that you know we don't engage in diplomacy with iran or cuba for that matter um, and we don't say that we'd go after bin laden in pakistan because we have to work with pakistan and once again common sense kind of prevailed uh, in obama's views but more insidiously over the course of the eight years uh, the alternative narratives that that were created around obama got more toxic you know, I described in the first year in our administration, he had a habit when he would speak abroad, not of apologizing for America, but of describing how America's capacity to change through its democracy uh, is, well, frankly, for lack of a better way of putting it, what makes us great. You know, that, that you know, we are not without flaws, um, but, you know, the civil rights movement allowed us to correct, you know, one piece of a major flaw in our history. And, and, and he would use that as a way to try to connect with audiences to say, hey, we're not perfect. Uh, we try to get better um, through uh, through our democratic process. And in some cases, he acknowledged in our, our past foreign policies um, where we hadn't gotten it right and we're trying to get it better now. This became the apology tour. Um, and the whole narrative was created that he apologizes for America. But then it became, you know, he's kind of different in some ways. And most insidiously, he wasn't born in the United States uh, or he's a Muslim, which he's not, but as if there's something terrible about that. And, you, you know, it, it, Sarah Palin to Fox News to kind of the Tea Party, an entire narrative was built around the otherness of Barack Obama, when in fact Barack Obama is an, an incredibly grounded, recognizably American figure uh, who's dignified and has a great family. And so the kind of unhinged nature of that narrative began to cloud our administration. And then later in the administration, I saw, in particular, I walked people through kind of the Benghazi experience, uh, how that bled into conspiracy theory. And the otherness became, he's trying to do harm. You know, he is responsible for the deaths of four Americans, or Hillary Clinton is, or, um, you know, all manner of, of scandals that, frankly, most Americans might not have consumed, but if you consumed certain media, including Fox, you would consume you would consume this stuff. Um, you know that built and built and led into Trump, um, and so the the kind of alternative narratives about Barack Obama, about Hillary Clinton, about the world uh, that were building over the course of the last decade had as their logical um, trumpeter, well, pardon the pun, <laughs> Donald Trump. You know, I I think that. I was really impressed with the language in this book. I think the prose is really great. And I think the way, the manner you approach this is 
almost unmemoir-like and much more novelistic. So I'm wondering, was there a, a point when you said, I'm going to write this like a novel or I, as opposed to a memoir? And did you worry about the fact that since it reads very much like a novel, that that would give anybody who was so unkind <laughs> yeah, yeah. more fodder to say it is a novel? Well, you know, I had this kind of bizarre experience of uh, um, I had gotten a master's in fiction writing when I was 24 years old, which anybody who's gotten one of those knows it's not exactly like getting a law degree. <laughs> you know, like you don't get it and then suddenly publish a novel uh, and you kind of get it while you're working three jobs, you know. But this fact in my biography became the entry point for a whole manner of right wing caricatures of me over the years because you know, Ben Rhodes, the fiction writer, dot, dot, dot. And it was basically an effort to say whatever I said was a lie because I, long ago I'd gotten a master's degree. It's kind of absurd. So I was mindful of that. But, you know, I decided to say, screw that. I'm going to block that out. Um, I'm going to write the, the, the book the best way I can. And the most important thing for me is I went back and I looked at other political memoirs. And frankly, it's a pretty dispiriting genre. Um, <laughs> usually, it's like a collection of meetings. And you know, here's why. Here's, here's all the meetings I was in. Here's why I was correct in every one of those <laughs> meetings. Here's like six scores I want to settle. And it just wasn't a particularly illuminating genre. And so I actually looked for other examples. So I looked at, 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 at more literary memoirs, frankly. Um, and I did read some novels. I remember reading All the King's Men to, to, you know, All the King's Men was a better book about politics than any political memoir I'd read. And so I did try to find a voice that was in tone, at least. Um, I don't want to say novelistic because I don't want to give my criti critics that uh, opening, but more literary, I'd say, than um, your, your kind of garden variety political memoir. I think one of the, the fascinating things is in this book is that we literally used, called it a coming-of-age story, and I hadn't actually thought of it, about yeah. it in that way, but that's exactly what it is. And it's fascinating to see you grow up. Yeah. And, and I'm wondering how much one of the things that this book that is deeply involved in is this idea, I think, that hindsight is twenty twenty. Yeah, yeah. How much did hindsight inform your vision of yourself early on and as you went through these experiences and, and found yourself, you know, more and more, eventually you became, you have a chapter uh, becoming a right-wing villain. Yeah. Well, to me, um, one of the important things that I wanted to show, you know, is precisely because of the way in which debates play out in Washington, which is fairly trivial, and in some of these memoirs where it's like, you know, this I was absolutely right. You know, I'm certain that this was right. Or maybe you pick something and say, I know I was wrong about this. The reality of the world is particularly on these foreign policy decisions, uh, whether to go to war or not um, or whether to pursue diplomacy or not. We don't know for certain. I mean, I, you know, I cannot tell you for certain that if you know we had done X in Syria, Y would have happened, for instance. Um, and I wanted to show people that complexity that. Um, that that you, you you all you can do is you know try to care about the right things, try to evaluate the facts, uh, try to to weigh the consequences, known and unknown, to what you're going to do, um, and do the right thing as best you can. Um, I do describe over the course of the eight years, kind of coming to believe less and less that war is an answer to um, a lot of the challenges we see around the world, and and probably controversially on Syria, I went from being an advocate for intervening militarily in Syria to essentially agreeing with Barack Obama that that even that intervention could not end this tragedy and frankly could compound it, for instance. What, where, where the lesson I drew from that is I, I looked, it was interesting, and at the same time that's happening, as you described, the right-wing villain chapter, I somehow found myself becoming this kind of character in their in their drama of the you know the right wing's view of uh, the Obama administration. And what I did is I looked for hopeful things. Um, and you know I describe I, I I spent two years negotiating the normalization relations with Cuba. Um, you know, twenty meetings, eight 
hours a day, um, a lot of time into this. Um, and I realized when I look back psychologically as I was writing the book that that I had started to look for these projects that, you know, I might have more control over and um, that were affirmative, you know, that, that I could know that this is the right thing to do to try this. Um, and, and and so I, I kind of developed an eclectic set of issues that I, I was working on the last three or so years, I think in part to find ways to use that job to to make a positive difference, knowing that uh, the the world was not going to cooperate <laughs> um, when it came to particularly these issues of, of war and peace in the Middle East. I think that uh, Barack Obama at one point uh, late in the narrative says that along something along the lines of that the best foreign policy decisions are the ones you don't yeah, <laughs> make. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that pretty much anything you do is quite likely likely to go south. Well, you know, he got a lot of grief for saying. Uh, I won't use the the bad language, but don't do stupid stuff. Yeah. Um, but what undergirded that was actually a more interesting conversation that I relay in the book, which is that after he got reelected, um, he met with a group of presidential historians. Um, this is what a fascinating scene. <laughs> yeah, which he liked to do from time to time. He you know, like the outside voices he liked to bring in were not you know pundits, you know, which is some of the reason why some of those pundits didn't like him. But he liked to talk to historians, writers, um, different people. And they went through kind of the, the the presidencies of the last several decades. And the pattern that he found was that most foreign policy errors were errors of action, um, usually having to do with military action. And that, frankly, in many cases, those actions kind of subsumed the entire presidencies of people. Um, so obviously, Lyndon Johnson with Vietnam... Um, obviously, George W. Bush uh, with Iraq, to some lef- lesser extent, Jimmy Carter with the hostage rescue mission um, in, in Iran. You know, uh, from a certain perspective on Ronald Reagan, you can look at Central America and Iran Contra. Um, and you, let's not forget the Bay of Pigs. Well, and you go back to Kennedy and you <laughs> Bay of Pigs and, and potentially the, the escalation in Vietnam. And, you know, I think the the lesson that he drew was. You know, we as Americans don't learn from our history um, that uh, intervention is often the impulse and often the political pressure is to intervene. Um, but our track record isn't good. And the reason to take the hardest issue head on in Syria, there was ample reason to intervene. I mean, it was a humanitarian catastrophe. Um, but what Obama was looking at is, you know, we had just spent a decade in Afghanistan and Iraq with enormous military uh, expenditures uh, and lives and resources, and frankly, had not been able to change those countries much for the better. Um, and neither of those countries was nearly as developed or as as powerful as and, Syria, and didn't have Iran and Russia supporting the government. And so, again, his judgment was: we couldn't fix the problem in Syria. We could make it worse, and we could find ourselves in the middle of it. Um, and and so he resisted all the, the the pressure to go in, um, and you know I describe in the book, and, and this is an important point to kind of the story I was telling. Late in the administration, I actually got involved in Laos, um, tiny country on this side of the world, which is the most heavily bombed country in history of the world. Um, we dropped more bombs on Laos during the Vietnam War than all of uh, Germany and Japan during World War II, for instance. And there are still 80 million unexploded bombs in Laos. And there was an unintended consequence. Forty years later, people are being killed by these bombs you dropped. It, you couldn't kind of have a better, it's not even a metaphor because it's, it's the reality, example of how wars that begin in good intentions can end with very bad outcomes. One of the things I think that was really interesting was that um, the way you uh, create characters in the book and uh, reading Barack Obama as a character is a fascinating experience for me as an American because we get to know him in a way that the way that you did, which is not the way that most people did. And there's a point in the book uh, where he finally says that you're a friend. And I think that we intuit that as we read the book. And I think you do a great job of creating that moment and creating that relationship 
in and it's not like a super close Batman and Robin yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it, it, first of all, I wanted to just let him talk in mm-hmm. the book. And, and by that, I mean, you know, not at the head of the table or in the venues people are used to seeing him, but, you know, what's he sound like in the car? What's he sound like in the hotel room? Um, you know, and, and that could illuminate him. Like, so on race, for instance, you know, he he used to it used to come out. You know, we would be prepping for a press conference. You know, going through the questions he might get. We'd say, you know, you'll be asked whether some of this opposition to you is rooted in race, and he would say, yes, of course. Next question. You know, <laughs> dark humor. Um, or we'd say, you know, what do how do you deal with the tensions involved with the Black Lives Matter movement? And he'd say, you know, cops should stop shooting unarmed black kids. You know, and it, it was a way he could talk about race with us in ways that he felt constrained from talking about publicly right and so i wanted to give the reader that that voice of obama as a three-dimensional human being who's who's sometimes angry and frustrated sometimes funny um and also show this relationship of you know it's a complicated relationship to work for somebody and then become close to them and yes on, we're flying home on air force one after he was reelected, and he, you know i was kind of deciding to stay in my job for a second term and as he was talking about why that was what he wanted and he went out of his way to say, you know, I'd, I'd like to have you around because you're actually my friend in addition. And it was interesting that he almost that he had to say that, you know, because ultimately you're a subordinate, you know. And I even described in that scene, like then I had to go back and brief the press for him. You know, so you're, you're always uh, you're always staff. Right. Um, but at the same time, like these jobs are intense. You work very closely together. And even though he's Barack Obama, the president of the United States, the progressive icon, he becomes a human being who's in your life and who you see as a human being. You don't see him on television, you know, and and that that was an interesting process. And I wanted to share kind of what that experience is like, knowing that there are a lot of people out there who are interested in or like Barack Obama, but didn't get to be in those rooms that I was in. You one of the things I think that's so interesting about this book is the way Every single issue, every single problem, every single solution has is pulled at from three or four different directions, all of which seemingly have really kind of logical pushback. You expected, um, you know, you would have opposition from the Republicans on, on Syria, yet they knowing that even though they wouldn't give you the power to act yeah. in Syria, that they'd still criticize you for not acting in yeah, Syria. Yeah. So they'd say, you can't do this, but you should have done it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and yeah, and yeah. so I think that that kind of uh, look at, at the many problems, and sometimes the reasons on both sides are really good. Yeah. So talk about that kind of lack of clarity. We like to think everything's, oh, it's just we're going to bomb them or we're going to go over there and hand them a garland. It's not that simple, is it? Yeah. I mean, this was really... Um, uh, the most difficult thing about these jobs is that, uh, you know, in hindsight, people like to to be pretty reductive about it, right? You know, and if Barack Obama had bombed Syria in 2013, somehow everything would have been different, you know. Um, uh, when, you know, when in fact, actually, we've seen Barack, uh, Donald Trump has bombed Syria a couple of times and nothing has changed, you know. But um, so the what I wanted to show people was the complexity of this office of the presidency, which in that incident, the red line incident after the use of chemical weapons by Assad in 2013, Obama was looking at both the question of, of whether to do something, but also whether it could work. Um, and you have to weigh different factors. And one was international support didn't materialize. So we didn't have a kind of coalition. Um, second, the congressional uh, imperative from the Republicans was you must get this authorized by Congress. And if you act without congressional authorization, it will be unconstitutional. Uh, and you know, Obama said to us at the time that he took that very seriously as a threat, um, potentially of impeachment, that if he you know, went to war in Syria without authorization, they could say, well, we wrote you this letter warning you this would be unconstitutional. Hardly a crazy thought given how the Republicans dealt with Obama. Um, and we had no legal basis domestically or internationally without that authorization. Or obviously, we weren't going to get a UN mandate because Russia could block that. Um, and then you have this multifaceted civil war. And so what we found is there are very good reasons to intervene, but the conditions weren't present for an intervention to work, right? And that was the, the tragic choice of Syria is that you could always find a moral and ethical basis for going in. 
but we could never identify what the military options that would work and that could be sustained absent public support in the United States or international support around the world. And so, you know, I wanted to, to let people inhabit those choices and recognize there are good arguments on, on both sides of these things or all sides of these things, really. Um, here's what we decided to do and why. Um, but I don't feel the need to say, and we were right. I mean, you can draw that conclusion. The one thing that was crazy making is that the Republicans, it's one thing to deal with people who have an opposing view. Their view would shift based on whatever we did. So when it looked like we were going to bomb Syria, they were against it. When we didn't, they suddenly were demanding, that we, why didn't you do that? You know, and that was a very strange world to inhabit for, for eight years. It seems to me, too, that during those eight years, that whole the oppositional nature of, of of the Republican Party changed, and I think one of the things that was really interesting for me in this book is as I was reading this book, my experience of those eight years was largely based on the domestic what was going on, yeah. which was basically that everybody was setting their hair on fire on a daily basis and, yeah. and putting it out the next day and saying, "Look at all this smoke." Yeah. Well. What a surprise. Yeah, yeah. You had, I think, in a sense, a more serene experience, not a slightly more, because you were somewhat mm -hmm. out of that domestic yeah. scrum until uh, towards the end. That's uh, right. And I one of the things I found really fascinating as I, as I was reading this was when you were talking about our wise and successful uh intervention into Libya, where, as you mentioned, we saved tens of thousands of lives. No Americans were hurt. It did all the things that everybody would hope would happen in Syria. But as you were writing that and telling that story, you, a couple of times you used you mentioned Benghazi. Yeah. And I just thought, yeah. oh, my God, Here comes, this yeah. version of Ben does not yet know yes. what that word will come to me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's a really it was a really interesting to relive this because I described the meeting where we decided to intervene in Libya and Benghazi was a dot on a map. And the presentation was made that Gaddafi's forces were outside of this city, Benghazi. Um, and very few times in your life would you ever find yourself in a situation where the people briefing you are essentially saying, if nothing happens in the next few days, Gaddafi will go into the city of several hundred thousand people, and he's pledged to go door to door and kill people like rats, and tens of thousands of people could die. Um, and so Benghazi in that moment was a city full of human beings, and if we acted... Unlike in Syria, there was kind of a clear military option. You, know, you stop this advancing army, you save these people in a city. Uh, whereas in Syria, the fighting was far more kind of intermingled street to street. Um, and ultimately, President Obama decided to act. And you're right. I, I had to put myself back in the situation of when Benghazi was a city and not a, a quote-unquote scandal. Um, and then you know, the meaning of Benghazi, the word Benghazi, changed so much over the next four years because it went from being this city where there are human beings I never met that Barack Obama could act to save to being this all-encompassing essentially accusation um, from the right that could lead all the way to Hillary Clinton's private email server. I mean, it's a surreal thing to, to relive. Uh, one thing I, I was always curious about um, the this on um, this private email server was such a big deal. What, were there like technology bylines yet in the White House during those days? Were they like laid down as a result of this? It seems to me that I had spent many years in IT, and yeah. during that time, email servers were not something that anybody in their in their brother could set up. Yeah, I mean, the basic guidelines were use your government email. Uh -huh. um, don't even use a private email address, never mind a server. Um, and and the reason for that, frankly, is was also that um, everything that every record you create in a job like I had is, is actually a public record. Now, mm -hmm. it doesn't become public for like 25 years, but it goes to kind of an archive, you know. Um, now, uh, the, the irony of the whole thing is that... Um, I didn't know that Hillary Clinton had a private email server until that came out of the news, right? It's not like um, we go around checking what server, you know, like the emails are coming in on. Um, some people would use private email from time to time. Frankly, um, you know, I I always assumed when every now and then I'd get a Gmail from somebody, right? It, 
kind of a matter of convenience, you know, like they couldn't log on to their work laptop, so they sent an email, right? So it wasn't unheard of uh, that that some people would use private email addresses. Uh, and frankly, as we've seen reported, you know, the Trump people did the same thing. Um, what was different about her was that it was this server, uh, which is was, I thought, strange when I learned it. Um, uh, but uh, so to this day, I don't, I frankly don't know why she had a private email server. Uh, I do know that in the scale of things that should determine an election, like it, it's less important than, you know, uh, the fitness of the person to be president. <laughs> I, I, I would not disagree with that statement. Yeah. I, the, you talk about um, the growing Russian campaign of misinformation. Yeah. And, and one of that, this I found a really interesting section. Oh, long ago, probably back in the 80s, I read a book by a guy named Stanislaw Lem, who mm-hmm. was a Polish, but he had a, that was a Russian country when he was writing. Yeah. And one of the things he wrote about uh, was he wrote a book called, or a little piece called Weapons Systems of the 21st Century. And what he said was that in the 21st century, you if you can weaponize something like weather, you can attack somebody without it being clear where the attack is coming from or that it is even an attack, which fundamentally changes the nature of war. Mm. We saw this with the first incursions of the information war yeah. uh, that the Russians conducted. Talk about that growing realization that we are now in a world where Russians could use the information superstructure that we'd helped create, yeah. the internet, yeah. to undo us. Yeah, I wanted to tell this story, um, uh, you know, because a lot of people don't quite understand what happened in our election. So uh, I've always believed in the story I tell in the book is that you can't understand our election without looking at Ukraine. Um, because what happened in Ukraine is in 2014, there are these protests that oust the Russian-backed government, uh, Yanukovych. Um, and Putin, that's when everything changed with Putin because um, he believed that we were behind those protests. He believed that Ukraine was uh, inseparable from Russia. He drew no distinction, frankly, between Ukraine and Russia. And so this was the moment he was going to start pushing back. And I, as a person who dealt a lot with information and, and, and you know uh, what's in the public domain, um, suddenly started to see Russia change its information stance. You know, number one, they would just lie um, in a way that they didn't in the past. Uh, And I'll give you an example in a second. But, you know, number two, they also had clearly a capability to disseminate huge volumes of information. And number three, all bets were off. And I, I described in the book the day that I heard that uh, a, a phone call between a diplomat for us and our ambassador in Kiev had been hacked and released. The the transcript oh, I of the remember event, that. right? Yeah. And what was so chilling about that is that it was them talking about who should be the government in Ukraine. So it seemed to validate the Russian theory, right? That we were handpicking the government in Ukraine. But what was so chilling is that the notion that the Russians would hack something, not at all surprising. You expect that they're going to intercept phone calls and. But the, them releasing it was kind of crossing, uh, breaking a seal, crossing a Rubicon. And after that, it was all bets were off. And just to give a couple of examples, when MH17, the plane that flew over Russia, uh, over Ukraine, was shot down by Russian-backed separatists, um, killing you know hundreds of people, huge international incident. You know, the next day, the Russians do a press conference where they give three different theories of what happened all of which are contradictory, none of which are true, you know, blaming the Ukrainians, blaming everybody except, you know, the people actually did it. But then what I saw is the social media bots are creating thousands of stories validating all the Russian conspiracy theories and flooding European Internet users uh, with these stories. So if you were from the Netherlands where the plane took off and you searched MH17, you would probably get a bunch of Russian propaganda, but you wouldn't know that that's what it was. Um, and, you know, so their, their ability to lie coupled with their ability to disseminate that kind of information coupled with their, you know, willingness to hack things and release it was all developed in the Ukrainian context. And our, they just brought it to the United States in 2016 in our election. They they'd weaponized information. And you're right. You can't tell if you're an Internet user and in your Facebook feed you get a story that says Hillary Clinton is the most corrupt person ever because she did X corrupt deal. You don't know whether that was created by a Russian 
or whether it was created by Breitbart, you know, um, it's like the weather. You don't know where it came from. Uh, and the reality is tens of millions of Americans were consuming this in 2016. You yourself were the victim of a couple of interesting misquotes. And I think it's fascinating to see how uh, much people will, will pretzelify, pretzelize yeah, yeah. the words of, of one person in order to make their own point. So yeah. talk about those experiences. That must have been really, I think, extremely uh, frightening and I guess make you feel uh, maybe powerless. Yeah, that's exactly the right way to put it. I mean, two the two examples I gave, which I'm sure are not the only two that have affected me, but one was on Benghazi. Um, you know, when that scandal was flowing at some at some point, uh, an email was reported by ABC News, so a pretty credible news source. And the email seemed to ve- they they quoted an email from me from uh, the week of the Benghazi attacks that appeared to validate the conspiracy theory that we had kind of aimed to construct a narrative to protect Hillary Clinton because it said that I weighed into a group of people in the government and said, you know, we have to you know take all agencies equities into account, especially the State Department, you know, and um, I forget what else is in there. But that was the key point is that that this seemed to I was putting my thumb on the scale from the White House to say, like, Hillary Clinton's at state. We're going to they're going to we're going to do whatever they need to be done to protect her. And I remember reading it and thinking um, that doesn't sound right. It prompts all this right wing outrage, you know, the smoking gun. Now we know that what they were up to at the White House. I found I actually searched my own email and was kind of chilling to find it because I'd actually said we have to protect all equities, particularly the FBI investigation and the, the facts of what happened. Right. So I'd actually said the opposite of what this uh, email said. And what was kind of chilling is that we corrected that. Right. You know, we put that up. But by that time, nobody cared. Right. Because everybody had been stirred up by my original email and the kind of people who got enraged by my original email weren't going to say, well, Three days later, a fact check came out, so we'll let Ben Rhodes off the hook. And then there was an even more insane one later during the Iran deal debate where this Breitbart published two stories um, with a quote from me that said, we believe that the kiss of the Iran deal will turn the Iranian frog into a prince, which is literally (laughs) insane. And I never even said it. I mean, it was actually just an invented quote. I I never said anything remotely like that in my entire life. First of all, who talks like that, right? They literally just invented something. Fox News anchors. Yeah, but they just (laughs) invented something that could validate their theory, right? And they said I did it in an interview with uh, this journalist, Jeffrey Goldberg. And there was a transcript of that interview. So we could go and say, this is crazy. We never said this. But, you know, Breitbart doesn't fact check anything. And you realize that, like, millions of people consume that. I mean, the powerlessness is I realize that we could hold up our fact checks that, you know, several hundred people might read. But out there in the world, you know, people are reading this stuff and getting enraged and believing that I'm this kind of character. Um, And I felt like and I didn't realize I wrote the book how much I felt like I was losing control when you lose control of who you are to a huge segment of the public, it does have a kind of a distorting effect on you. You get, um, you, it, it, powerlessness is a good word. You you feel like you cannot, that the forces around you have kind of gone insane in a way and you are living in some alternative you know, reality. I, I think that you do also a good job of uh, describing the personal toll that this job takes. This is a two four seven job. You were essentially uh, with Barack Obama for ten straight years, twenty four seven. At the same time, you were married. You had mm-hmm. a child. Yeah. So talk about that. You how you that played out with your relationship with Anne and yeah. your wife, and just making that, weighting that aspect of the book. Yeah, I really wanted to let, I mean, I I saw this as an important story to tell because, again, I wanted my character to be recognizable to people, right? Mm-hmm. And everybody's in relationships, maybe it's marriage, where you're balancing work and life and, 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 you know, what's going on in your relationship. But 
I wanted to let people see what it's like to go through this job. And, and I was, you know, dating Anne at the beginning of this experience, married her early on in it. But then to describe, you know, the, the wrenching toll it takes when, for instance, you know, her father got cancer and died um, while um, I, in 2012, you know, while I'm dealing with all these different issues, including this, you know, emerging Benghazi uh, scandal towards the end of the year. And she, I'm just not, I'm not present enough. Um, And I'm even describing that email that I uh, sent uh, that was misquoted. I actually remembered I had sent that at home standing in my closet so she wouldn't see me on the Blackberry (laughs) because she was so angry, right? Then the whole centerpiece of the scandal uh, involving me on Benghazi's is Sunday show appearance that Susan Rice had. And I'm describing how that Saturday, uh, you know, prepping Susan Rice for the Sunday shows was like the most routine thing I could do. And I was trying to catch up with Anne. I, I took that call in like the parking lot of like the wine store where we were doing errands. You know, like but these people think you cease to be normal human beings when you're in these jobs. Um, and then a year later, I described... Um, we were going out to the West Coast for the first vacation we'd had together in a long time. And we were meeting up with our whole family for a long trip that was going to kind of culminate visiting her father's grave on the one-year anniversary of his death. So very meaningful to her. And when we took off, the Syrian chemical weapons attack took place. And I described knowing, you know, that I was going to be called back um, and not wanting to tell her that for the first kind of 24 hours. Um, and then being in this position where in the scale of human suffering, you know, I know that my family inconvenience is nothing compared to the event I'm responding to, all these people killed in Syria. And yet, you know, um, it's a very kind of humbling thing to realize that you're going to say no at home. Like if the president of the United States says, like, you have to come in, you know, <laughs> you're 99% of the time you're going to say yes, you're going to go in. And 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 I wanted to show people how do you navigate that as a in, in a marriage and in your personal relationships. I I think it's fascinating as we read about this book about your job, which seems in some ways to be like you know uh, sweeping the sand back into the sea. Yeah. Uh, there's an, a crisis. You you deal with it, and by the time you've dealt with it, either a new crisis or as result as. Uh, appeared or the way you dealt with the old crisis has itself become a crisis. And this leaves your work in somewhat, leaves you somewhat unsatisfied in a sense. And so you decided that you wanted to do some things where you could identify that you can make a difference. Yeah, uh, Cuba was one of those things. You made a, uh, did something that hadn't been done in a long, long time. So yeah. talk about that and the sense of actually accomplishing something in yeah. the midst of this sand sweeping. Yeah, it's you put it really well. Um, that's exactly uh, the the image that I would have come up with if I could have. Um, and and so with Cuba, I basically volunteered. I, I knew that if somebody didn't raise their hand and say, like, I'm going <laughs> to talk to the Cubans for hundreds of hours, it wouldn't happen because you have to car- – it's not a crisis. It's not coming at you. And you could spend all your time in government just doing what's coming at you. Um, and so I, I had these negotiations with Alejandro Castro, Raul's son, uh, over, you know, mostly in Canada, some in Trinidad, Mexico, Cuba. Um, and over the course of a year and a half, we – and I take people through that negotiation, how we started – from a very small deal talking about a, basically a prisoner exchange and ended up with this big bang of normalizing relations, establishing embassies. And the moment that captures what you were just saying is we went to the Vatican in the fall of 2014 and we had finished the deal. And the role the Vatican was going to play is that they were essentially the witness. So it's like a third party guarantor because, you know, we don't fully trust each other. So if a third party, if we present our commitments to the Vatican, we can't go back on them. That was essentially the role the Vatican was going to play. Now, the Vatican didn't know why we were showing up because they don't do anything over email, which in retrospect looks wise, <laughs> given uh, everything. Um, they just thought they were hosting a meeting and, and trying to be helpful. And when we got there, they were stunned at, at this progress. And they actually had separate meetings with the Cubans and then us to say, are you guys really agreeing to normalize relations and establish embassies? And, um, and I remember when I walked in with this cardinal, 
he kind of looked at me after I said yes, and he said, "Who are you?" <laughs> you know, because I, I wasn't you know John Kerry, but I remember sitting there and and we're reading these commitments, and the 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 cardinal says at the end, he's like, "You know, this is going to give people hope around the world," and he actually was tearing up and saying that with all the the, the awful things happening in the world, this this could show you know, the ability to get over the past. And, and and what I realized in that moment is that this tangible thing we were going to do in surprising the world by announcing normalization of relations between the U.S. and Cuba was was going to stick. Um, even when Donald Trump, you know, tried to roll some of it back, we'd, break in, we'd broken a kind of a psychological barrier with between the United States and Cuba that was going to be meaningful not just to us but to other people um, who were looking for examples of things like that in a, in a world of, of, of so much centrifugal forces, just two adversaries being able to let bygones be bygones and try to move forward was a, was a, was a tangible thing that wasn't just about responding, you know, sweeping the sand <laughs> out. It was saying, we're going to pick this issue and try to show here's a different way for nations to deal with each other. Reading this book is... A, a sweet and wonderful experience that makes us long for these times where hardworking, smart people are trying to solve problems without blowing stuff up or yelling at each other too much, mm-hmm. uh, which you manage to do, and it's wonderful to read. But it's really starkly bizarre yeah. also to read from today because of the events that you, you describe at the end of the book. So talk yeah. about that. I had to say, stepping off the cliff, walking into the buzzsaw. Well, it was, uh, first of all, it was weird to write with <laughs> Trump. You know, <laughs> basically, I wrote this book, you know, in the first year and a half of the Trump presidency. And wow. I, 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 you know, I, I had to fight hard to not let that infect. You know, I wanted the story to not be, you know, infected by Trump. You know, this mm-hmm. is, I, I wanted the 2011 me to not know how the story ended. Um, and it, what was so horrible about it is, you know, um, it's not just that a Republican was elected. You know, if, if Jeb Bush had been elected or, you know, even somebody like Marco Rubio, who I don't have, you know, a lot of good feelings for, um, it wouldn't have been the same in the sense that Trump literally represents kind of the opposite of everything Barack Obama stands for, you know, personally, politically, socially, economically. And what was so odd about that is it it didn't feel, you know, at the end of the presidency, Barack Obama wasn't unpopular. He actually had his highest approval rating in years. And and so it didn't feel like the American people, um, this may sound strange, but it didn't, feel like there was a rebuke of Obama, you know, it felt like some complete convergence of circumstances, you know, some crazy, right? Jim Comey's letter, Russian meddling in our election, some fairly routine, like a a Democratic campaign that could have been done better, um, and some more existential, as I described in the book, like how, how much was this about a backlash from a certain segment of the population to the first African-American president and his policies all converge and lead to Donald Trump. Um, And uh, I'm still digesting that. (laughs) You know, um, what was weird for me personally is when I stepped out of the White House, and this is not in the book, um, I don't think I'll write the sequel, but um, the, the kind of the craziness that I described towards the end where I became this villain and continued, right? And so... Um, I had over the course of the year, like I had to testify in front of Trey Gowdy again about unmasking Trump people on Russia when, in fact, I never did that. Right. And, you know, I had learned, you know, Israeli intelligence people hired to spy on me. I had Trump people saying I was running a deep state, you know. And so there was this bizarre reality I was living in where. Even though we were out, it's just like they were still, you know, attacking Obama. Like they were, I was this bit character that they were still attacking, and so it's been a pretty disorienting year and a half because um, not only is Trump president, but they're still treating us, the Obama people, as their antagonist when we're not in power, we're not doing anything, right? Uh, and 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 it, but that is there's something kind of uh, authoritarian about that, right? Like you need enemies, you need 
foils. You need cons- the conspiracy theory has to be about someone else, lest it become about you. Well, when you're not dealing with facts, you need to create yes, something. And exactly. I, I think that uh, that takes us to the title of this book, The yep. World As It Is, which I think is really an important concept. It's be- the the ending of the book, the, your coda, I think yeah. is really beautifully written. Yeah. And Thank you. I, I think that this is this is a critical point in America in the American experiment which is will we pay attention to reality or will we use our impressive story building prowess yeah. to convince ourselves that reality doesn't matter and we can just follow this great story we're telling ourselves yeah. well and the you know the two things one is from the Trump people and the Republican party which I really do believe you know institutionally has kind of gone off the rails um so much of their their story is projection right um so you know the things that they would you know they would call us liars when they lie with impunity you know <laughs> or they would attack obama for golfing when they golf more than Obama. you know like there 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 was a an interesting window into the things that they would accuse us of like they, those are the crimes that they are committing, you know. Um, and 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 there's obviously hypocrisy in that, but there's kind of something more sinister in that, in which maybe they actually believe that um, uh, that we're the same as them, you know. Or I, I, I you know, I, I, I don't know. But to, to more seriously, the title, um, you know, the point I'm, I was making with the titles, it was basically a paraphrase from. Uh, a term of art that Obama used um, in his Nobel Peace Prize address, where essentially that uh, speech became about um, how do you reconcile the necessity of of war at times with the pursuit of peace? Um, And he describes basically the need to see the world as it is in order to pursue the world as it ought to be. If you just see the world as it ought to be, you'll... uh, you won't get there because you you know you won't reckon you won't reckon with the very dangerous forces and tribal forces that exist in the world, um, and so it's actually a hopeful title. It's not the kind of you know it's not a foreign policy realist statement. It's saying that if we want to pursue the world as it ought to be, we have to look squarely at the history of the world as it is, um, because if you don't look squarely at that, you can't succeed in pursuing the world as it ought to be. The new book by Ben Rhodes is The World As It Is, A Memoir of the Obama White House. Thank you for joining me, Ben. Thanks. That was great. I really enjoyed it. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.